Well, good morning. It's such a privilege to be here with you all this morning as we consider this topic. My assignment that's been given to me is entitled The Grace of God and the Gospel. And quite simply, it is to, in the next hour, do justice to the totality of Jesus's saving work as the Messiah, the totality of his work in both of his life and his death. That's all. It's an impossible task, which I will, with God's help, try to undertake. I've divided the talk into three main sections. First, we'll look at the active obedience of Christ in his life. And secondly, we'll look at the passive obedience of Christ in his death. And then we'll end by applying that work to our lives, to our hearts. I've given an outline which has been passed out for some of you who were here before. I find outlines can be really helpful in helping me to follow along. So it's a detailed outline helping you in that way. If you need an outline, there's some here in the front, there's some in the back, and there will be folks who can uh, pass one out to you as well. Before moving in through these three sections, though, I want to lay out two main goals that I have for you this morning. Two things that I want to happen in this talk. First, I want you to see God's perfect plan in salvation. See God's perfect plan in salvation. In every way... God's plan of salvation that we're going to be considering this morning in his life and his death was perfect. And I want to say two things about this perfect plan. First, its perfection is seen in the fact that it was a designed plan. It was a designed plan. If you could imagine being escorted down the stairs into the basement of the Situation Room in the West Wing of the White House and being a fly on the wall as all of the military plans are designed and then executed. Rescue missions taking place. Could you imagine I want to take you this morning into the divine situation room. I want to take you this morning into the divine war chamber where Christ's plan of salvation was designed and then executed. I want you to, I want to peel back the veil that we see the biblical blueprint for this plan of salvation. It was a rescue plan more carefully, skillfully, and perfectly designed than even the most covert Navy SEAL operation ever devised and executed. It was a designed plan. But it was also a two-part plan. Oftentimes, 
When people describe Christ's saving work, they see a a half Christ. They don't see a whole Christ. They see a half Christ. They see his work in his death, but they miss his work in his life. I don't want you to receive a, a half Christ this morning. I want you to receive the whole Christ this morning. And he must be received. Listen to how the Puritan John Flavel says it. He says, The whole Paschal lamb was to be eaten. In like manner, the whole Christ is to be received by us. Both, and this is the whole, what he did in his life and what he suffered in his death. So that's goal number one. I want you to see the divine plan of salvation in both parts. Secondly, I don't want you to just see. I want you to savor God's personal rescue of you in that plan. I want you to exult in the personal nature of the covenant of grace. This is not a rescue in the abstract. This is not a rescue that's described describing the rescue of others. No, this is a rescue on the sinner's behalf, on your behalf. It's as if you can go into the divine situation room and behold Christ's saving plan of you, that you were the one who needed to be rescued. And we see his rescue of us. For this is how we are intended to read our Bibles. Do you remember what Martin Luther said? He said, we must read our Bibles, hear this, with great emphasis. The words, me, and for me. And as we read, we have to accustom ourselves to accept and apply to ourselves with certain faith, Luther said. The words, me. He says the words, are, for us, and us ought to be written in golden letters. And then he said this, the man who does not believe them, that's for me, is not a Christian. Takes your breath away. Has to be a personal, savored plan. I want to note finally two things about Christ's twofold work as it applies to this saving nature. First, Christ's twofold work meets our two greatest needs. Let me ask you this morning, what do you think your greatest need is? What do you think your greatest need is? God has declared your greatest need is payment and obedience. Your greatest need is a payment for sin and a perfect obedience owed to God. John Flavel says this, we owe him active obedience as his creatures and passive obedience as his prisoners. It's a twofold work that meets our two greatest needs. 
But this twofold work also cannot be pulled apart. So even though I'm framing this as two separate needs, they are indivisible. It is a single work. Herman Bavink says this, just as Christ is always in everything, simultaneously, prophet, priest, and king. So, in his work, he is active, his activity was suffering, and his suffering was action. It was one single work that Christ accomplished. Wilhelmus Abrakel said that the two aspects of Christ's work coalesce in Christ. And neither, Brockle says, may they be separated from one another. And yet, even though it is one work, it is finally two distinct works. Listen to how Francis Turretin says it. Now, although these two benefits flowing from the obedience of Christ are indissolubly connected in the covenant of grace... They are not to be, now hear this, they are not to be confounded as if they were the same thing. And this is brilliant, this is beautiful. He says they are to be distinguished because it is one thing to be freed from death, another to be introduced into life. One thing to be delivered from hell, another to bear it up in heaven. One thing to be freed from punishment and another to be bestowed a reward. So I want you to see this morning. I want you to savor this morning. And so with seeing and savoring in mind, let's walk through the active and then the passive obedience of Christ. What is it? What is the active obedience? obedience of Christ. Well, simply put, the act of obedience of Christ is Christ's fulfillment of the covenant of works, that's key, by perfectly obeying God's law throughout his entire life on behalf of the elect. And the reason that this is so important that we not miss the act of obedience of Christ is because there is a link between the covenant of works in our need, and the covenant of grace that Christ has fulfilled. And so we can't understand the covenant of grace. We can't rush on to the covenant of grace unless we understand first the covenant of works. Because the covenant of works is both the basis of our need for salvation and our hope in salvation. It is both our need and our hope. The covenant of grace only makes sense if you understand the covenant of works. So what is this covenant of works? It's the covenant that God made with Adam and his posterity, everyone who was born after Adam, that upon the condition of Adam's obedience, that he not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that if he did that, he would obtain eternal life. However, if he failed, he would die. That's the covenant of works. 
It contains two things. It contains precepts or duties required of us. And it, and it contains sanctions, rewards. Duties and rewards are pun- and punishments. Duties, rewards, and punishments. Now you ask, well, but that was Adam. What does that have to do with me today? What does what God said to Adam have to do with me? As, said, as I said, the covenant of works is the basis of our need and our hope. It is the basis of our need. We say, well, that's Adam. How is it our need? You are seminally and covenantally united with Adam in his need. Stephen talked about this last night, that not only Adam, but every, don't miss this, every single human being who has ever lived, every human being who descended from Adam failed to keep the covenant with Adam. And therefore, because they failed, you failed in the duty, the sanction is the same as well. Stephen Charnock says it beautifully like this when he thinks about why are we in Adam and culpable for Adam's sin, but we're not culpable for the fallen angel's sin. He says, if we had not a union with Adam in his nature and been seminally in him, his sin could no more have been imputed to us than the sin of the fallen angels could have been counted ours. There is a union with Adam. You are united with Adam. It's the basis of our need. But it's also the basis of our hope. Did you know that God's grace is shown not only in the covenant of grace, but his grace is shown in the covenant of works? Many people think, Covenant of grace, good. Covenant of works, bad. No, that's not right. Both the covenant of grace and the covenant of works are gracious. And there's two things that are gracious about the covenant of works. First, think about this with me. God did not owe Adam and Eve, you or I, eternal life. You ever thought about that? He could have just created them and said, boom, I created you. You owe me obedience. He didn't have to enter into a covenant with Adam. You say, well, what good is that? We broke it. Still, God graciously entered into the covenant of works. But think about this, and this brings me to my second point. Even when we failed... He uses the covenant of works and Christ's fulfillment of the covenant of works in the covenant of grace. Because in the covenant of grace, Christ fulfills the covenant of works. He fulfills our need and becomes our 
hope. This is the glory of the covenant of grace. And as we think about the covenant of grace, I want us to think about it in three ways. It's a covenant that was planned. It's a covenant that's fulfilled. And it's a covenant that is received. First, it's a covenant that is planned. John Payne talked about this last night. That before there was time, God the Father made a covenant with Jesus the Son. That upon Jesus' fulfilling of the covenant of works in his act of obedience... And dying a death in our place in his passive obedience. That if Jesus did that, then all who believe in Jesus would be counted as a part of the covenant of grace. John 17, 6. I have manifested your name to the people, Jesus said. Whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. The reference of God the Father giving a people to the Son, that's a plan. You say, well, when did that happen? When did God the Father enact this plan with Jesus the Son? Before there was time. Just think of it. It takes your breath away. Before there was time, God had a plan. He had a plan from eternity. It was a gracious plan. The fact that there was any possibility, not only of escaping punishment, let alone receiving reward, is an act of God's sheer graciousness. He overflows with grace. It was also a loving plan. It was a, it was a plan of triune love in redemption. The entire Trinity was involved in this plan. Sinclair Ferguson in his book, The Whole Christ, says it like this. God was not first moved by Christ to love sinners. I think that's often the way we think about it. Jesus convinced God the Father to love sinners. God was not the first moved by Christ to love sinners and to grant them eternal life, but was moved from eternity within himself. It was a covenant planned. It was also a covenant fulfilled. It was a covenant fulfilled by Christ as our federal head in union with Christ. That in order to understand Christ fulfilling the covenant of works on our behalf, we have to understand that Christ had to be united to us in his person and had to complete a work on our behalf. There's a person and a work and these things are in Christ united. 
There's a person. And his personal work was first necessary. Do you know that? It was necessary for God to become a man in Christ. Anselm in the 11th century wrote an entire book, Curdeus Homo, Why God Became Man, on why it was necessary that Jesus be united with us in his person. Second, his person, him becoming a man, was voluntary. And third, it was costly. It was necessary. It was voluntary. It was costly. Herman Boving says this, Jesus voluntarily relinquished the eternal blessed life he already had and submitted himself to the law of the covenant of works. But his work was also necessary. Let me ask you something. Why do you need obedience? Why can't there just be a penalty paid for sin? Why must there, why all this stress on obedience? And this is, this is incredible. Listen to how Francis Turretin describes it. He says, For life is promised by the law, not to him who suffers. Suffering will only pay the penalty. But to him who performs. Do this and live was God's original command. Before his disobedience, Adam was righteous. But he still had to secure eternal life in the way of works. It's a necessary obedience. What can we say about Christ's obedience on our behalf? Now, just follow with me here. I, I realize we're moving through a lot. We're talking about Jesus' person and work. But I want to lay out very briefly for each of these Eight aspects of the nature of Christ's obedience on our behalf. Eight things that were true about Christ's obedience. First, it was a real obedience under the law. It was a genuine thing that Jesus was really subject to the law of God. He was, Galatians 4, 4, born under the law. Secondly, it was an authentic obedience in which Christ was subject to real temptation. Although Jesus, as a sinless man, never experienced temptation from within, from a sinful nature, nevertheless, Hebrews 4.15 says, That Jesus Christ was tempted in every way. He was was made made unto likeness with us in every way. He is able to sympathize with our weakness. Since in every respect he has been tempted as we are. Third, it was a sinless obedience. The requirements of the sacrifice is that it had to be a sinless sacrifice. 
First Peter 1 tells us that Jesus was a lamb without blemish. And this was absolutely crucial. Because if Jesus had not been sinless, think of this with me, if Jesus had not been sinless, he himself would have needed a savior. He had to be sinless. So negatively, if it was a sinless obedience, positively, it was a zealous obedience. Jesus loved God's law. He joyfully obeyed God's law. This is what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 5, 17, that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. No, he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. He loved God's law. He would have it no other way than to obey God's law. He loved God's law. He said, zeal for thine house has eaten me up. He was the most zealous obeyer of God's law who ever lived. Fifth, it was a total obedience. Jesus obeyed every single part of the Jewish law. Every moral part, every ceremonial part, every, he, he fulfilled the entire law. He underwent circumcision, baptism, perhaps even some kind of animal, sacrifice, animal sacrificial system. Participating in the Old Testament animal sacrifices. It was a total obedience. Six, it was a persevering obedience. And I think of all of these, this one just astonishes me. Francis Turretin says this, It was not enough to perform a single act of righteousness. Wouldn't been enough if Jesus came and he just did one, one righteous act and then died. It was not enough that he, he executed a single act of righteousness. But the law required a righteousness arising from the fullness of obedience. Scripture depicts Christ's obedience as a consistent, continual, flawless, constant tenor of obedience throughout his whole life. Hebrews 12 says that he ran the race set before him. Jesus ran a marathon of obedience on our behalf. And he ran that marathon with a joy in his heart. It was a joyful, persevering obedience. Seventh, it was an exclusive obedience. No one else besides Jesus Christ, has ever fulfilled all the requirements of law. He is in a category all to himself. And then finally, it's a substitutionary obedience. We often think about a substitutionary death. Well, this is a substitutionary 
obedience. We'll get into this more when we talk about the imputed righteousness of Christ. But his obedience was given to us. So covenant planned, covenant fulfilled, covenant received. And here I only have one main point, and we're just going to break down this main point into four different clauses. Covenant received. What does it mean to receive Christ's obedience? It means this. Through faith, we are united to Christ and receive his righteousness and are justified by his works. I'm just going to break down each one of those statements. First, by faith. By faith, through faith and trusting in Christ. And we're going to talk about what what does it mean to trust in Christ at the end. It is by faith is the instrument by which we receive all of Christ's good works. And his complete fulfillment of the covenant of works. This is why it's called the covenant of grace. Because God graciously allows us to receive Christ's work. He does all the work and we receive it by faith. That's grace. That's grace. Grace is, you didn't do anything, but I'm going to give you everything because of Christ. That's grace. And it's by faith. By faith, we are united to Christ. Do you know that? That through faith, you are actually united to Christ. You receive a new Union. We talked about how you're united with Adam. But through faith, you're united to Christ. Listen to how Charnock puts it again. If we have not a union with Christ, if you don't have that, his righteousness can be no more reckoned to us than the righteousness of the standing of the angels can be imputed to us. We must be united to him. Third, through faith, we're united to Christ and receive Christ's perfect righteousness. Now, this is no ordinary righteousness. This is a perfect righteousness. We end up in a better place than we would be if Adam had obeyed. Listen to how Herman Bobbing puts it. Jesus placed us at the end of the road that Adam had to walk, not at the beginning. He gives us much more than we lost in Adam. Not only the forgiveness of sins and the release from punishment, but also and immediately in faith, a not being able to sin and not being able to die. One day, You will not be able to sin and not be able to die because of Christ's perfect righteousness that puts you not in the beginning, not in the middle, but at the end of the road that Christ walked. It's incredible. And therefore, we are justified by His works. May I ask you, do you get to heaven by good works? 
you better believe it. You get to heaven by the good works of Jesus. Those who are graciously redeemed have all his works on their behalf. This is the glory of Christ's active obedience. It is a covenant of grace in which we receive all that Christ accomplished in the covenant of works. It is a covenant planned, it is a covenant fulfilled, and it is a covenant received. You say, that's incredible. Is there, do you even need a passive obedience? Do you even need Jesus to die if he achieved all of that in his life? You do for two reasons. First, to pay the original penalty that we owed. And two, to seal his work in his death. Turton says it like this, Christ's obedience, hear this, would have been no avail to us if it had not been sealed and consummated by his death. So turning now to his passive obedience. We're going to look at five parts of Christ's passive obedience. But before we do that, I just want to say two things that I hope will be a banner that are true of every single thing about Christ's passive obedience. Two things that you could say are true about every single part of Christ's work on our behalf on the cross. First, it is a rich, multifaceted work in which each part illumines the other. We're only going to talk about five aspects of Christ's work on the cross. We could, have, we could talk for days about what Jesus accomplished at the cross. We're not going to be able to cover everything. But I want you to notice, even though we're going to be taking this in five different parts, it is not as though each of these are separated from the other or that it's actually five separate works. No, these are five facets of a unified work. It's not like Jesus paid a ransom and that was one work and he satisfied God's wrath and that was another work and he restored us into a right relationship with him and that was another work. No, these are all one work and it's different facets of a unified work. We're going to be looking at the prism of Christ's passive obedience. That just as you look through a prism and the white light turns into all different colors, all different facets of that one white light, so in Christ's death we see five different facets of a unified work. It's a multifaceted work. It's a rich work. Secondly, it's a personal, not mechanical work. Each facet is personal, not mechanical. And here's why. Because it is an expression of the very love and heartbeat of God for you. It is God's love that ultimately draws us in. 
Christ's death is, as Isaac Ambrose says, a love letter, love letter sent from heaven, written in bloody characters. Thought about that? Jesus' death is a love letter written in his blood. And it's his love that draws us in. I love how Charles Spurgeon says it. He says, The thunders of the law and the terrors of judgment are all used to bring us to Christ. The law is used. But the final victory is affected by loving kindness. His love draws you in. If you were drawn to Jesus today, ultimately, you were drawn in by his love. It is his kindness, Romans says, that leads us to repentance. It's a rich, multifaceted work. It's a personal, not mechanical work. And I want to look at five facets here with you. First, expiation, or you could say ransom or redemption. What does that mean? It means that in the cross, through his death, Christ removed two things. The penalty of sin and the stain of sin. There were two things removed. That's the focus. What's removed in Christ's death? First, he removes the penalty or the ransom or the bond that is against you. Did you know that? There's a ransom against you that must be paid. Speaking of this ransom, Thomas Goodwin says, God had a bond against us, Colossians 2.15, and we must lie by it until it was discharged. But he that is Christ hath discharged that debt, paid the equivalent ransom to it, and canceled that bond. We need to be released from this ransom. The word for ransom that's used in Mark 10.45, for example, the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That word for ransom, it actually comes from the Greek verb for to release. It denotes, Bob Inc. says, the means by which a person is to have something discharged or to be released from the bonds of prison. Namely, through the payment of a sum of money. Was Christ's death enough? Did he pay enough? Was it sufficient enough? Oh yes, it was sufficient Ambrose says again, there is in Christ's blood an infinite treasure able to sanctify thee. And in all the world, there is in Christ's death a ransom, a counterprice sufficient to receive all sinners. Oh, there is a treasure in Christ's blood that is sufficient for you, friend, today. Oh, there is a treasure. Have you received? The payment that releases us from prison. So first, it removes the penalty against us. Secondly, he removes the guilt and stain of sin 
within us. This is all throughout the Bible. This is not a peripheral thing to the Bible that we're talking about here this morning. The entire Old Testament is filled with allusions to the removal of guilt in sacrifice. Leviticus 19, the whole Day of Atonement, all the animal sacrifices, this is about the removal of the guilt and stain of sin. And of course, this is what the whole book of Hebrews is about. That Christ is both the high priest and the sacrifice who removes the guilt and stain of sin. Friends, I think you know this. But apart from Christ, we are absolutely filthy. We have absolutely filthy souls apart from Christ. Oftentimes, before going into work at the seminary in the morning, I will kiss my kids goodbye there while they're eating breakfast. And my youngest, James, who's second youngest now, but uh, who's three, he will often be so eager to give me a kiss or to give me a hug. But he is, when he's eating his breakfast, absolutely filthy. He's covered in yogurt. He's covered in butter. And he says, Daddy, give me a hug. Give me a kiss. I say, I can't do that, James. Until... I've hosed you down. Until I have washed you. Until I have cleansed you, James. I cannot have intimacy with you. Jesus removes the guilt and stain from your filthy soul so that you can have intimacy with Him. He removes the penalty, but He also removes the stain. That's expiation. Second facet of Christ's work, propitiation. That is the bearing on the cross of the objective abandonment of God and enduring God's hot wrath. The world and indeed the church has zero conception of God's wrath. You ask the world, who is God? God is love. No, God is God is love. He's love. He's love. Whatever that means. It's the same in the church. My wife and I, when we're back in where she's from in Orlando, there's been this sign. It's been there for a decade. It's a church sign up on a huge billboard. And it says in big letters, God is not angry. God is not angry. Let me ask you something. Is God angry? God is furious. God is filled with anger. His anger burns hot against us. If you don't understand that, Jesus' words on the cross will make absolutely zero sense to you. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Will make zero sense if you don't understand that God is angry. The cross is about objective abandonment. Jesus' cry is a cry of objective abandonment by God. Boving says it was not an illusion or a feeling based on a false view of a situation, but it corresponded to reality. He endured the wrath of God on our behalf. And we get just a, a small picture, a small window into the the terror of that abandonment. When we see Jesus in the garden, in his perfect humanity, nevertheless, crying out, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. He dreads his death as death and is eager to flee, if it be possible, his own doom. Jesus bears the wrath of God in our place. He takes all of that wrath on himself. and He satisfies it. He propitiates it in his death. Third, Christ's work was a work of reconciliation to restore us to a right relationship with him. It was only if and when the wrath of God would be satisfied that he could restore us and reconcile us to God. Romans 5.10 says this. See if you hear it. See if you hear the propitiation and the reconciliation. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by his death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And as such... Romans 5 says, we have peace with God. Oh, how I wish we could unpack the implications of Christ's reconciliation for the church. But this is just one talk, so we must move on. Fourth, Christ's work on the cross was a victory over God's and our enemies. It was a victory it was a victory over sin and death. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 and 46. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? I love it. It's taunting death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. How has Christ changed death? He has taken away all the sting, all the bitterness of death. So that when you die, that's it. You just die. You just die a physical death. You don't die a spiritual death. The sting has been taken away. He has conquered sin and death. But he's also conquered the world Satan and his principalities. Colossians 2 verse 15. 
says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So he's victorious. And that victory provides admission. It is the admission ticket into his victorious kingdom. Did you ever notice that the Gospels, particularly the Synoptics, depict Jesus as a powerful king who not only has the authority to forgive sins, but he has the authority to grant admission into his victorious kingdom. He's victorious and he ushers you into that victory. Finally, you could say all four facets previous are encapsulated or find their expression in this final one. His death was a penal substitution. Christ took our sins and he gives us his righteousness. Penal substitution is not simply a New Testament doctrine. It is at the dead center of the Old Testament. It is central to covenant theology that there must be a substitute. And all of those substitutes point forward to the great substitute, Jesus Christ. And of course, it's central in the New Testament. You can think of no more key text than 2 Corinthians 5, 21. You know it well. The double transaction. For he has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He takes on our sin. We take on his imputed righteousness. What does that mean? His righteousness must be imputed to us. He takes our sin. His righteousness must be received by us. You remember the story of Martin Luther? He famously said that word righteousness. He hated that word. He hated that word, the righteousness of God. Why? Because he believed that it meant that God was righteous and he was not. And as a result of God's righteousness, Martin Luther had no chance because he was not righteous. He said it wasn't until he read Romans 1 verse 17 that he learned that righteousness was a gift of God received by faith. And he said, here I felt I was altogether born again and had entered into paradise through the open gates. I extolled my sweetest word that is righteousness, with love and as great as I hated it, with which I had hated it before in the same word. A word that he hated becomes sweet. So how do we apply this? As you sit there in the pew this morning, how do we apply Christ's saving work? As you behold God's divinely designed rescue plan, I want you to worship. 
And I want you to be able to say with John Owen, this is how John Owen thought about doctrine. I, am, I have not even imagined that I have attained a proper knowledge of even one article of faith until this. Unless through the Holy Spirit, I have had such a taste of it in its spiritual sense that I may be able from the heart to say with the psalmist, I have believed, therefore I have spoken. I want you to be able to say that. That you have a spiritual taste and sense of what talking about this morning. And so from this active and passive obedience of Christ, it pushes on our, on our backs and it calls us to three things, three imperatives as we close. First, receive Christ by faith. Rather than assuming that you have a saving knowledge of Christ, I want to unpack what does it mean to have faith? What, what does it mean to receive Christ? I want to do this by looking at the substance of faith and then the consequences or the results of faith. The substance and the consequences. First, to receive Christ by faith. The substance of that faith. What is it? I'm going to argue that it is not merely trusting Christ, but it is treasuring Christ. Faith is experientially embracing Christ and his work. It is experientially embracing and treasuring Christ and his work. Listen to how Stephen Charnock describes it and see if you hear it. Faith, this is what faith is. This is so gorgeous. Faith is the eye and the hand of the soul looking up and reaching out to the whole Christ as offered in the promise. It grasps Christ as his sacrifice. It hangs upon him as paying a price. It takes this blood as blood shed for the soul and insists upon the sufficient value of it with God. You know what faith is? Faith is the eye looking up. It is the hand that grasps hold of Christ. But even that, it's not simply trusting. It is treasuring. I'll never forget at a Ligonier conference, John Piper came to speak uh, right after R.C. Sproul, in which R.C. gave a brilliant exposition of justification by grace through faith. And he used the famous illustration of the chair, in which he said, faith is not just looking at this chair and, and believing that this chair can hold me intellectually. No, faith is, is actually being willing to entrust yourself to the chair. It's being willing to sit down in the chair. And John Piper comes to speak up after him and he says, oh, thank you so much, Dr. Sproul, and with, for that exposition. But with all due respect, Faith is not merely being willing to entrust yourself to the chair. He says, faith is treasuring the chair. And then you can imagine him just picking up the chair and he says, faith is 
I love this chair. Faith is, I would be completely lost without this chair. Faith is, I have absolutely no hope without this chair. Do you treasure Christ? Do you have no hope without him? And I love that later in the conference, R.C., next time he stood up to speak, he said, I love the chair. <laughs> I love the chair. It's the substance of faith. What are the consequences? What are the results of faith? It's objective and it's subjective. Objectively, it's everything we've already talked about. Objectively, the results of faith is a payment for the penalty of sin. It's a cleansing of the guilt and stain of sin. It is the satisfying of the wrath of God. It is being reconciled to God. It is victory over all of God's enemies. It is having His perfect righteousness. That's the objective results of faith. But oh, that's not all it is. It has a subjective element. Negatively, it is the quenching of a raging conscience. It is a conscience that knows it has peace with God. Do you have that? Do you have peace with God in your conscience? Stephen Charnock says, No blood applied to the conscience can cleanse it, but the blood of this great sacrifice. It silences the accusations of, accusations of sin and quells the turmoils in a wrangling conscience as it is sprinkled on the soul. It quenches the raging conscience. It silences the acquisitions, accusations of sin. But positively, it satisfies the soul. This is the whole point of treasuring. It satisfies the thirsty Soul. Jonathan Edwards says this, There is no true comfort, comfort to be found anywhere but in God. God is that spring from whence issues a pure stream of comfort. Where the thirsty may satisfy their longing souls. Where the weary may find rest. I love this. This fountain is an ocean, just picture it, is an ocean without shores or bottom enough to satisfy the enlarged desires of our heart when God shines into that heart. Have you experienced this? The cleansing of your soul, the silencing of your conscience, the satisfying of your heart. Receive Christ. Secondly, reject functional, or you could say experiential, legalism. I'm sure all of you are familiar with what legalism is, definition of legalism. Just repeat it. Legalism is the attempt to remove sin and justify oneself before the throne of God not by everything we've just talked about, Christ's work, but by seeking to establish one's own righteousness 
through, and here's the key, moral performance. However, legalism is not just doctrinal, it's functional. It's in the heart. A legal frame, a person who affirms justification by grace through faith, can be seemingly biblical, but experientially or functionally in a person's life, it is every bit as legalistic in its bent. It will require you to perform morally in order to justify oneself before God. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that good works are not a necessary evidence of fruit of true faith. I'm not saying that. However, our good works must never become the basis or the condition by which we are righteous before God. And and this is where Sinclair Ferguson is so helpful. That legalism, functional legalism, shows itself in how we feel about God. As whole persons, our emotions are a part of how we relate to God. He says we do not relate to God in an emotion-free context, but as whole persons, mind, will, dispositions, motivations, affections. He says within this matrix of legalism at, at its root is the manifestation of a restricted heart disposition toward God, viewing him as the lens of the negative law that obscures the broader context of the Father's love. This is a fatal sickness. And he says the litmus test is how do you respond, let me ask you, how do you respond when you fail? Ferguson says, in failure, one can have an evangelical head and a legalistic heart. What the heart hears when it fails is, I have failed somehow and I must now try harder. It often draws forth the response of experimental legalism, resulting in turning back to the legal spirit and saying to oneself, Try harder. Do better. And he says, the only way you can resist this functional legalism is to do three things. First, you have to see yourself rightly before God. That your good deeds will never be enough to merit God's favor. I love how the Puritan Obadiah Grew said it. Listen to this. He he gives the picture of um, Jacob before Isaac trying to receive the blessing. The meat that Jacob provided for his father Isaac was good and well-pleasing to him. Yet he got not the blessing by this, but by being found in his elder brother's garment. Isaac smelled the smell of the garment and then blessed him. So it is through, not through graces or holy duties and holy lives of believers that are well-pleasing to God. It is not that God does bless them with the forgiveness of sin, but it is because you are covered in your elder brother's garment, the righteousness put on to you. So we revel in Christ's obedience, even, or you could say, especially when we fail. The Puritans called our failures as Christians, sinning against the light. Is that how you understand your failures? 
That you are a believer in Jesus Christ who is sinning against the light. And when we do this, it frees us to obey. Not because we need to obtain God's favor, but because we already have it. Because we already have it in Christ. Finally, and I know my time has run out, must revel in the covenant love of God. I want to close just by looking briefly at four aspects of the covenant of God. And here's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping as you see the covenant love of God, that it will stir up within you, push on your back, and cause you to run, to run into the Father's arms of love. First, it is a particular covenant love of God. Friends, what we're talking about this morning is the electing love of God, which is different, hear this, from the ordinary general love of God that he has for everything and his creation. Dare I say, if all you ever know of the love of God is that general love of God that he has for everyone in the world, with Luther I say, you may not be a Christian, as it has to be applied to you. It's a particular love for you. And you say, well, where is that in the Bible? Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 9. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people of his treasured possession. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on and chosen you. It is because the Lord loves you. Charles Spurgeon says, The Lord Jesus cherishes the church with a particular affection which he has set upon, upon her above the rest of mankind. The elect church is the favorite of heaven, the crown of his head, the bracelet of his arm, the breastplate of his heart, the very center and core of his love. It's a particular love. Second, it's an unbreakable covenant love. Many of us, we, we feel confident about God's love when we're doing well, when we're being obedient. But then we lack any confidence that God still loves us when we sin and fail. If that's where you're at this morning, I want you to hear the logic, Paul's gospel logic in Romans 5, 8 and 10, and see if you hear the logic answering that concern. Romans 8. God has commanded us his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, he's going to reason from the greater to the lesser, Christ died for us. Do you hear that? While we were enemies, Christ died for us. Much more than, there's the logic, greater to the lesser, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were his enemies, there it is, greater to the lesser, he loved us when we were his enemies. We were reconciled to God by his death. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Paul is earnest to stress that if God loved you, indeed died for you, when you were an enemy and hated him, then be assured he will love you even when your love is fickle toward him. It is the logic of heaven from the greater 
to the lesser. It's a limitless love. Romans 8 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There it is, that logic again. From the greater to the lesser, he gave us Christ, the greatest gift. How will he not give us all things? Finally, it's an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. The reason he continues in his faithfulness to them is because he loves them. Oh, embrace the covenant love of God for you. Run to him. Fall into his arms. Embrace him. Embrace all that Jesus did through his life and his death on your behalf through faith. Let's pray. Father, this is an awesome thing, God. Your love for us in Christ. Your life, your death, all in our place. Oh God, give us the faith. Lord, cause a treasuring to well up in our hearts. Satisfy and quell the raging conscience and satisfy our soul with your steadfast love. In Jesus' name, amen.